McFarland, McFarland Energy, thanks once again for powering another great Bradfield Show. Today's Bradfield Show brings us a Bradfield Show Hall of Famer, one of the elite. That's Daniel Bard, closer for the Colorado Rockies, having an awesome, awesome year. I mean, when I say awesome, it's really awesome. 11 for 13 in save opportunities, best whip of his career, 3-1-2 ERA, the works. I mean, this is a guy who looks a whole lot like the guy that we remember from the Red Sox back Back, uh, let's see, to 2009, 2011. A legit weapon, and once again, a closer. Whoever thought a closer. So we get the chance to talk with Bard about the state of baseball when it comes to exactly that. Why you can still value a closer, which obviously around here the Red Sox are still looking for. Also, did he think he was going to take over for Jonathan Papelbon? Also, remembering the bachelor party that was Steph Curry at Fenway Park. Also, his relationship with Steph Curry, because I don't know if you know this, they went to the same high school. All this. It's a good podcast, just because Bart's great to talk to. You know the story of him overcoming the Yips, one of maybe the only athletes that we can ever remember doing that, and not only overcoming it, but then going on to excel. And, boy, could the Red Sox use him right now. He would look good in a Red Sox uniform. But, you know what? We'll see. That's for another conversation. Uh, maybe a little bit of the conversation, but still, it's no matter what uniform he's wearing, it's always great to talk to Bard, Hall of Famer, Brad Show Hall of Famer. Here he is. All right. Well, listen, every once in a while, we have to check in with the Hall of Famers and Brad Show Hall of Famer, Daniel Bard. Daniel, how you doing? I'm great, man. How are you? I couldn't be any better. Couldn't be any better. So, um, first of all, oh, my goodness. I was looking at your numbers today. And, and listen, I know that you don't like talking about yourself or whatever. But let me just say congratulations on a great year so far. It's awesome. When we, last time you came on the podcast, it was so awesome. It was, it was you went through your whole story and coming back and everything else. But it kind of feels like right now as we sit here, you're sort of like, taking it to another level is that cliche i mean it's do you feel put it this way do you feel better than the last time you appeared on this podcast remind me when that was that over i don't even know uh pandemic wasn't it yeah it was the pandemic maybe it was that maybe it was it was was right after you had won comeback player of the year okay uh pandemic um we we inducted you into the bradford show hall of fame um i never got my shirt by the way well, there's a lot of shirts coming your way. As you said, I went back and looked at the tape of that, and you said you had the great line of saying, I'd rather have a shirt than a trophy, which is, yep. right? Correct? I never, and I never got either one, so. All right. All right. Well, they're all on the way. Tori Lovello is supposed to present it to you uh, directly in person as a fellow Hall of Fame. I don't trust I can't trust him. can't trust him. He's, a, he's the enemy now. I know. I know. He's but- hoarding him for himself. But, you know, but we're all one happy family here at the podcast. Yeah. Um, so, so answer my question if you could. Like, do you, so going back to that, at, you came back, you had that, that uh, comeback player of the year year. Um, you feel good. And now, mm-hmm. yada, yada, yada. Do you feel better now? Yeah, I, I think this, this section of my career has kind of played out like a lot of the beginning of a lot of guys' careers where you have that success early on because you're just kind of out stuffing people and you're new and nobody knows exactly what you got. And then last year it was kind of that situation where, you know, I was put in the closer role. So 
especially the teams in our division, they do a really good job, I think, of studying studying their opponents. So if you're in the closer role, they're going to study the heck out of your tendencies, your tips, whatever you do to try to get try to win games off you in the ninth inning. So uh, I think there was just that thing where the league makes an adjustment to you. And last year was me trying to figure out what they, what they were getting off me. So, um, and this year is just a progression of, of me trying to adjust back to the league. So, so far, so good. I feel good. Um, going back to a lot of the things I did, uh, really back in Boston, just kind of sinker, sinkers and sliders and challenge guys in the zone. And so far, uh, so far, so good. So what, so how are you, are you different? Like you said, going back to Boston, listen, I mean, I said this a million times. Like there isn't a lot of there's sometimes there's weapons in baseball. You were a legitimate weapon. Okay. You know, you got first and third. Here you go. Here's Daniel Bard. He's going to get you out of that jam. And it's usually because you were blowing 99, you know, with a pretty good breaking pitch when not a lot of guys are blowing 99. So you said it like you in Boston, but how are you different? Because another thing, Daniel, is like, I look at the whip. I mean, you're not, your control is great. You know, so tell me, tell me how you're different than if you than you were when uh, these guys around here were saying Daniel Bard is a weapon. Then you know, ten, twelve years ago, uh, yeah. I you know I don't feel much. You have, much a, you have, di- you have a kid. Feel, <laughs> I have three kids. Three kids. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of more life experience, I think. But no, I mean, pitching wise, I, I think I'm pretty similar. I mean, the the scouting report is probably not that different. Um, sliders shaped a little different than it used to be. That's about it. <laughs> yes, there, there you go. Enough yeah. Whatever works. But you know what has been di- – you brought this up, and I'm glad you brought it up about closers, scouting closers and everything. This has been a huge topic of conversation, especially around here, because we they haven't found a closer. And in baseball, there's that, well, we're going to use the closer in the sixth inning, the seventh inning. You don't need a closer. You're, going, you're pitching to pockets here and there. I say this, Daniel. Tell me if I'm wrong. There is something about closing out a game. Like, you can say, well, the, the three and the four and the five hitter are coming up in the seventh inning, so that's when you want that guy to face him. But there's, to me, and Billy Wagner was actually the one that said this to me way back when. The ninth inning, closing out a game is different, and you got to have that guy who can do that. Am I full of hooey? No, I, I think if you look at it on paper, it's just another inning, you know, and it's you, you should play matchups and all that stuff. But then if you look at it from a human aspect, guys who haven't done it before or haven't had any success doing it, it's really hard to go out there and get the last three outs. And if you if you go out there and – you know, you pitch well in the seventh and eighth and you get a couple save opportunities and you blow your first couple, all of a sudden it's even more on a pedestal for guys. I've seen that happen too. Um, it shouldn't be on a pedestal, but it is. Like, it's just, it's just the reality of it. You know, you know the reality of your team worked hard for that one, two, three run lead. Um, your job's to get in there and finish it out. And uh, you got usually 30,000, 40,000 people either cheering for you or against you. And, uh, some guys that makes them better. Some guys that makes them not as good. So, yeah, I think there's a personality that goes with it. I don't know if I have that personality. I, I try to, uh, but I feel good in the ninth inning here. And uh, I pitched in some other roles here too earlier. And I don't really care about role at this point in my career. I'm not like obsessed with I have to be a closer. 
Um, I don't want to be that way. But but I can do it. Yeah. I think I'm just at a point where I'm, you know, I'm just, honestly, it's cliche, but I'm just like thankful to be here and be having success. And if that's in the sixth or seventh inning, that's fine. If it's in the ninth, I'll embrace that too. So that's where we're at right now. Could you see that what you're talking about, understanding that ninth inning might be a little bit different and that, you know, whether it's the way the hitters are approaching it, whether it's the way the pitchers are standing on the mound and feeling, um, did you realize that when you were sort of witnessing Pat from afar? Because obviously, you know, like other than 2006, maybe, you know, he, that's all he knew, right? That's all we knew of him. And, and when, when, when they bring in Gagne or they bring in Wagner or whatever, he's like, I'm pitching the ninth. I'm a ninth inning guy. Like, did you? Yeah. <laughs> you no, know? I remember, I remember the way he was and that's unique. And I think it's what made him a really great closer, you know, probably a top five or top 10 of all time. And he did it in arguably that one of the hardest markets to do that in, to be a consistent closer. Um, he did it for six years. Um, and then he went and did it in a couple other tough markets in Philly and, and in Washington. So, um, he was unique in that way. I, I know there's certain guys who they, once they kind of grab a hold of that role, it becomes part of their identity. It's the only, only thing they want to do. Um, I like it. I enjoy it. I know how important it is to a team. I know how hard it can be at times. Uh, I, I remember I heard another guy on a different uh, interview podcast. I think it was Archie Bradley. And he talked about he, he became a better pitcher when he realized that blowing games was part of his job. Which sounds negative, but you think about it. Even a great closer is going to blow three to six saves a year, right? You blow three saves, you're Mariano. You do that every year. You blow five or six, you're still a very good closer. So you're going to blow five or six games a year, and they're going to feel like every time it happens, it feels like the world's ending. To people around you, uh, it can happen to you at times if you let it. And I think when you view it as like, I blew a game yesterday, and I'm going to show up today and be the same guy. Same guy emotionally, socially. If they put me in the game again, be the same dude on the mound and make the same pitches because that's all I can control. That's what makes a really good late inning guy, in my opinion, is you, you, you know you're going to blow games. It's going to happen. It's part of the job. The really good ones can do it and turn the page and be the same guy the next day. The guys who struggle in those roles, it snowballs on them. You know, they have a bad one. They try to be better on the next one. It doesn't go great. And, you know, then it's confidence issue and everything like that. So I think that's helped me this time around is kind of thinking that perspective is like, you're going to blow a game every now and then, but how do you bounce back? You, you can't expect perfection, you know? Do you think the baseball come around to that? I mean, do you think that, that, that right now, like you said, and I, I can only, you know, I know that's not like this everywhere. It's not like that where you are, but where we're sitting, you, we get a lot of that. You know, we get a lot of the, they, they even tried doing it with Barnes a couple of years ago. And, and Cora admitted, he said, like, I can't, we couldn't keep doing that. We couldn't keep having him run out and face the, the, the middle of the order every single time. It, it's just too much. And now it really has become a matchup thing. I think it's a lot in large part because they don't have the guy. But still, I mean, I think there's this acceptance um, that, oh, well, we don't, we don't need the guy. We don't need the guy. We don't need the guy. I mean, but at the same time, there's a lot of successful teams and a lot of successful closers out there who are still saying the human element is important, guys. Exactly what you're talking about. 
Yeah, and like, and like I mentioned also, I think in the, the age that we're in a baseball, the, you know, the, the, these analytics departments and these coaching staffs only have so much time to really dig into the opposing pitchers. So who are they going to spend time on, right? The starter is they're going to see for five, six innings, and then the back end closer and maybe the eighth inning guy. Because those are the guys, hey, we gotta, we're down by one. If we can get a tip on this eighth inning guy or this closer, it might win us two ball games in a year. And that's, you know, it can be the difference between playoffs or not. So I realized that last year that they were, there were teams spending a lot more time. I could just tell in their approach against me. Um, sometimes I swore I, they had a tip on me. The swings they were taking, I'm like, they know what's coming every pitch. And maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Maybe they were just, maybe I was getting, uh, you know, predictable in my in my sequences i'm not really sure at this point but um they definitely had a better approach last year and i think it had a lot to do with the role that i was in and teams like the dodgers and the giants who have these you know huge coaching staffs that just pour into all this information every day to pull out one little piece that might help them win a game and I, you know i give them credit you know it makes them really hard to beat but uh yeah, I mean, that's another part of the challenge of it. I'm sure they're doing that in every division across the league. Let me just say this, without naming names, but one of the teams that you mentioned, I had heard, I mean, they, like you said, these 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 organizations are doing everything. All of it, le- well, you think all of it's legal, but there's a ton of information. It's unbelievable. And one of these teams actually, I was told, has facial recognition software. Have you heard yep. this? Oh, yeah, I've. I, I don't know if I had a facial tip, but I heard about a guy on our team. I won't name names, but he, another guy that came to our organization this year, was like, hey, I was with this other team. We had a facial tip on you. Mouth open was a slider. Mouth closed was, was a fastball. I mean, this is something literally like as, you're, as he's lifting his leg, he's making a certain face. I don't know how a hitter can look at the face, compute that, and then adjust to the pitch. It's amazing to me, but Somehow they, you know, they do. I, th- I think it's legal. Like, to have facial recognition software, I think it's legal. I mean, I it's. I, I have no idea. No, I don't need either. But. I don't like. I don't like it. But I, no, I, but but you know, you reality. You had mentioned it is incredible for a hitter to understand that, and even like they talk about, well, the muscle in your arm, it's going to flex this way, right? If if you're going to throw this, yeah. pitch. you know, it's yeah. Man, it's yeah, even when a guy does have a tip, a lot of times it's so subtle. And because I'll sit there in the dugout in the first, second inning sometimes and wa- try to watch for stuff. And I mean, I'm not good at it by any means, um, but I'll try to see stuff and you'll see stuff. And you're like, oh, I got something. I got something. And it'll be good for like four pitches. And then it'll do the same thing and he'll throw the other pitch. <laughs> and then you kind of like for me, I'm like, that's still pretty good. Like he's still doing it. But if you're a hitter, you can't trust it anymore. You know, four out of five isn't good enough. No, they need no. it every time. So they can't be sitting, oh, it's a slider, 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 and then it's 98 at their chin. And they, they think that they're waiting for it to break. So, um, isn't, it crazy how far, how, isn't it crazy how far it's come? I mean, like I said, like the, you know, we, we talked, you know, when I was covering you and you're blowing guys away. And, you know, I, analytics was like this sort of stuff. Yeah, guys tip pitches and guys picked stuff up. But it wasn't like I, I, when they were getting their scouting reports on you, they're like, well, he throws this pitch and he throws that pitch and that's it, you know? It's yeah, nice. pitch, pitches and velocity, I think, was pretty much it. Yeah. Did you – going back to this last question, I'll have 
you know, about the Red Sox stuff, but did you think that you were going to be the closer? Like, obviously we timed it out. Right. And, you know, Pap's contract was up after 2011, you were coming up and I know that you went to do the starter thing, but as you're coming up, were you, was your mindset like that? Like thinking, looking at him and saying, Hey, you know what? He's probably gone after 2011. I may start, I may not. But did you think that you were going to be the closer in Boston? I mean, that was the logical progression, right? Um, I thought I would be, you know, I, I didn't, I was never like dead set on this is what I have to do. But I think after 11, when Pat Papelbon left and I kind of thought, okay, I assume I'll slide into the closer role. Like that's what was my thought at the end of the year. Cause he, I think he and I had had some conversations and it didn't sound like he was going to come back to Boston. And then I think it was like two or three weeks into the off season, like November, we traded for Andrew Bailey, which he was an all-star closer with Oakland at the time. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, I guess he's the closer. I just assumed like they got him, you know, he had 60 saves over the past two years. And, uh, so I assumed I was going to be slotting back in that eighth inning role, which is a little, I think that was a little frustrating at the time, which is part of the reason I wanted to start just to do something different. And so, it was after, so it was after Bailey acquired you like, okay, listen, I was thinking about starting anyway. Let's just yeah. let's do this. Yeah. I was kind of already thinking about it. And I was like, well, now I'm not going to be closing. So I, I think I just was kind of ready to do something different, uh, like a new challenge in a way. Hmm. The um, okay. Let's get down to brass tacks. You went to high school with Steph Curry, correct? He did, yeah. He went okay. to my high school, as he, I'm sure he, he tells told, everybody. He, he told a story back in 2011. This is like the, the Bradford Show crack research team about how you nailed him in dodgeball once. No way. <laughs> really? <laughs> that kind of rings a bell, yeah. He was, uh, he, let's get it. I was a senior when he was a freshman. Right. Right. I'm a lot older. I'm three years older than him. So everyone knew who he was at the high school. Just And it wasn't because of him yet. It was because his dad was Del Curry, who was a Charlotte Hornet, where I grew up in Charlotte. He was a Hornets legend, basically. You know, he was on some really good teams through the 90s. So we all knew who Del Curry was. They're like, oh, it's Del Curry's kid. Oh, it's, I mean, anyone who has a pro athlete dad at your school is like, you know, you know who he is, right? So that was kind of how we knew. And when you watch him play, he was on the JV team, I think, his freshman year. And skinny little kid. You could tell like, he had some ability. Like, he could dribble and shoot. But he was, like, even on at that age, he was, like, the smallest kid on the court. Yeah, and, and, and his dad, I remember his dad was playing. You remember when his dad was playing. I and mean, that was his thing, right? I mean, all he did was shoot. He was a great shooter. So when you probably but see his, kid. But Dell was, like, 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. He's right. a big dude. Yeah, but, but yeah. Steph was, Steph was like five five nine at that time, five ten maybe, and skinny. Um, so I knew who he was, and then it was it wasn't until I left for college, and I still had brothers that were at that high school, so I'd come back, you know, over our Christmas breaks or whatever, and go to some some of the high school basketball games because they were a good team. And then I'd see him sophomore junior year. I'm like, oh, this kid's actually really good. Too bad he's so small because like no one no one recruited him. So. He was a good, he was actually good friends with one of my brothers. They were the same class. And um, yeah, it was cool to see this kid who was kind of underappreciated. We always saw he was like super talented, but he was like too small. No one recruited him. And he went to Davidson and he almost, almost won a national championship at Davidson. And, uh, you know, 
goes to the NBA. And I still think he wasn't fully appreciated then. Right. Went in, had some ankle injuries, kind of got rid- written off. And it wasn't until, I don't know, five years into his career that he really took off, became what he is now. Did you play hoop at your school? I did not. They they tried to recruit me my senior year because they didn't have a center. So me at like 6'4 would have been tall, tall enough to be a center, I guess. And uh, I don't know. I was pretty locked in on baseball. I, did, I, I wanted to play, but I didn't want to get hurt. I was scared of rolling an ankle or something right before my senior baseball season. So. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, I, I just I was thinking about like, you know, when because when I watch him play, Daniel, like when I watch him play, I'm like, he makes me want to run out and go play basketball. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. My little brother. So my Luke, my brother, Luke, who's still playing, he's with the Rays now. Um, he played high school basketball and he was teammates with Seth, who's Seth's little brother, who's yeah. also an NBA player. Yeah. So pretty athletic family. Uh, so you've never you've never played like horse down the park with him or anything like that. No, I wish I wish I had, but I hadn't. <laughs> no, the only time I I talked to him at length, oddly enough, was 2011. I, I I know what it was. You do the bachelor party, right? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. I, well, I was just coming. We took that. We were taking batting practice. I was coming off the field after we shagged or hit or whatever, and. Someone goes, Steph Curry wants to talk to you. And he, again, like I knew who he was, but he wasn't, he wasn't the, you know, best player in the NBA that he is now. So I was like, oh yeah. So I went over there. He was kind of behind those red, the roped off area with, with, with a bunch of uh, kids from our high school that were all his good friends. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So I talked to him for a while that day. Did not know he was a huge baseball fan. Um, he was a Red, Red Sox, Sox fan, fan, apparently. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why, but um, well, no, that was cool. So we I, talked for a while that day. I guess his brother. The story was is his brother liked the Yankees and just sort of, sort of to piss off his brother. He liked the Red Sox. But good reason. Yeah, but I mean, for him, that must have been like, listen. I mean, you're in another sport at that high school. You were a big deal. So for him to say, hey, hey, oh, my goodness, there's Daniel Bard, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't realize it at the time that, you know, he probably, just being older, you know, probably looked up to me. This guy's a, been in the pro athlete, been a pro athlete longer than me, whatever. I don't know. Yeah, I just looked at him as like one of my brother's friends who was really good at basketball at the time. And now he's who he is. But um, happy for him, man. He's He's a... Super nice, super nice guy. I think he stayed extremely down to earth, given all his success and what he could have could have turned into. So, um, I'm happy for him. a high school man. What's the name of the high school again? Charlotte Christian. Yeah. Well. Yeah. We, at one point last year, we had four guys in the big leagues. Oh, really? Off one team. Yeah. Who else? Uh, me, my brother Luke. He was actually on the on the DL with the Angels. Um, Bailey Ober. Who was with who was with the twins starter and uh Jackson Coar, who was with the Royals. I think he's in AAA at the moment, but he was up last year. All right. So I want to I want to get the image of you all of you rolling off Steph Curry's private jet. They I need to make that happen. <laughs> oh, yeah. And for everybody, for everyone in Boston who's listening to this podcast, they will uh they also will want you to be at some semblance of the NBA finals. It's a big deal around here, Daniel. I don't know if you know that. It's a big. I've heard. I've heard. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. You were if, around. I don't know if you my were schedule actually, will allow. 
You were in Boston the last time they were they won. Remember that? What year was that? Well, no. Wait, what? So were was we, there like oh, nine to twelve? Oh, 13? you know what? You yeah. So it was 08. But they went to the finals when That's you. Right. Yeah, I was there for a Bruins championship for sure. Oh, really? Do you jump yeah. on the? Do you jump on the duck boat? No, I wish. I got to see the. They they came in the day after the. They won it though. That was kind of cool in the clubhouse. There you go. They were all still drunk from the uh, forty-eight hour celebration. So that's usually how it works. That usually yeah. how it works. Well, yeah. I, well, I don't want to keep you. I know you're getting ready for a game. Um, so uh, um, I appreciate everything. I I apologize that your your well earned um, trophies and T-shirts have not been delivered to you yet, but they I promise they will be. If there's one thing in this life I will do, it'll make sure that you are honored the correct way. Because there's only a few people in this Hall of Fame. You deserve to be walking around proudly. I'll keep my eyes open.